1: You have to have some type of identity separate from the money or your job. You have to. Because I think if you assign your identity to the job or to the money, then you're acquiescing control over your life to that thing.
0: This can't be it. There has to be more. Wait, am I crazy? No. If you're yearning for more and working hard to make your dreams a reality, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Dreamcatchers, it's the only show committed to helping you self-actualize and then transcend, leaving you with the legacy you've always desired. Listen in on conversations with successful philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and founders every week as we connect with them for inspiration, education, and direction. Your host, Jerome Myers, is here to help you exit the matrix and transform into a leader of your own revolution. The question is, do you believe your dream should be real? Hey,
2: everybody. Welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome, and we're bringing back a guest. We don't bring guests back very often, but my man Brian yeah. Adams is in from Tennessee today. And I'll tell you guys, I've got a great deal of respect for Brian. He's been there, I don't even remember, I guess it was probably two or three years ago when we first connected. And any time I've ever reached out to this gentleman, he, he's been willing to offer hand. He started out his career after leaving one of the Ivy League schools as a, as a DA or in the DA's office. And he grew and then he left that and got into this company where they were buying, I believe it was office buildings. And now he's got this boutique firm, Excelsior Capital, hundreds of millions of dollars in assets under management. I'm telling you this only because he won't tell you guys this. And so with that said, Brian, Super grateful to spend a little bit of time with you this afternoon, man. It's always a pleasure when I get to hang out with somebody as, as wise in their young age as you and get to dig in on what I think are some pretty interesting topics, man. So thanks again for jumping on with
1: me. Yeah, man. Thank you for having me. I look forward to it. Yeah.
2: So let, let's go back early on, right? Because I think you you believe in the American dream or you believed in the American dream at some point on your journey where you you go to school and you get good grades and then you get a good job and you start climbing that ladder. And then eventually, one day, potentially you retire and you try to live longer or not as long as you have money, right? Because you don't want to run out of money after retirement. But at some point you made a pivot. And so, you know, we we talk about exit number one being leaving corporate America. And while you weren't working at one of the Fortune Fives, you were working in the system. And so I guess my question is, what made you decide not to just continue on the government career and then, you know, get your pension? Because a good government job is what everybody's looking for. I don't think you grew up wealthy, so you made it, right?
1: Well, I guess a, a couple of things happened. One, you know, and then this is to give people context. I was a prosecutor in the vehicular crimes unit in Nashville, Davidson County. And it's a great job, especially at his Law School to cut your teeth as a young attorney, and I like trying cases. I liked working with police officers and helping victims, but a system that's not based on meritocracy is very frustrating. and to your point, being a cog in the machine, which I've realized we kind of all are, but it's really just how much agency and autonomy you have over what type of cog that you are. there was a moment where you know I was working basically traffic court. I was dealing with people who had no driver's license or a suspended driver's license or revoked driver's license, which in the state of Tennessee is a a C misdemeanor. And I was just processing people. Most of them were Latino, Hispanic, they were not able to get a driver's license because they weren't U.S. citizens. And yet they were working, right? So they had to drive around. And I mean, we would process a couple hundred people a day in that court and at the time, the Department of Homeland Security, if they had an ice hold on them, they would be deported. And I remember talking to the Homeland Security officer at the end of the day, after we'd gone through the docket, I said, man, where do these people go? Like, what happens to them? He said, well, they get put into a facility in Nashville, then they get transported to a bigger facility in New Orleans, and then eventually they get sent back to Guatemala or Nicaragua or wherever they're, Mexico, wherever they're from. And I was like, well, how long does that take? He said, between six and 12 months. And I said, well, how much does that cost? And he said, depending on how long they stay in the facility, between seventy-five dollars and $100,000 per deportation. Oh, wow. And I thought, bro, I'm making 53 grand a year. And I'm costing the taxpayer 75 or 100 grand times 200, 300 people a day. I just a said, day? I can't. For sure. Yeah, the traffic court operates Monday through Friday. And I said, I just don't want to do this anymore. This is ludicrous. And obviously this is just kind of a tipping point of a broader conversation I was having with myself, but I just wanted something different, right? And I had the opportunity because of my wife's family to get exposure to this different world that I didn't really know anything about of private equity and commercial real estate and investing in family offices and just thought there was more out there that I could be a part of.
2: Yeah. So... How did you prepare for your exit from corp or from the the district attorney's office? Because most people feel like they can't leave because of the go to handcuffs. You know, being an attorney, making $53,000, it sounds like an oxymoron, right? Like money is supposed to go with well, the prestige of being an attorney. You know, when I came out of engineering school, I was making $52,000. So it's really interesting to see how close compensation was between those two degrees. But how did you decide that, okay, I'm leaving and these are the things that allow me the flexibility to be able to leave?
1: Yeah, like I said, that had that one moment of clarity, but it was after a number of meetings and conversations with people within law. At the time I was thinking I would just move over to, to corporate law to get a corporate gig, and, you know, a local white shoe law firm. And I would double or triple my, you know, salary or my comp package. And I was having, at the time, I was having coffee with all these, mostly guys, right? Older, 65 to 75-year-old partners, because that's kind of who my in-laws knew, those people. And I would meet with these people. And, I mean, they were uniformly miserable people who had not a great home life, worked a ton, didn't really enjoy it. Didn't have a great relationship with their kids, usually. It was, there was all these commonalities, right? These fact patterns that you kept seeing over and over again. I remember one in particular, who's a managing partner at a very prestigious firm in town, said that when he looked back on his career, you know, 45, 50 years, he realized that the value that he made for the enterprise, right, the firm, was really a correlation of how much time he spent away from the people that he loved. And I just said, I don't want to be in business. I
2: like my family too much.
1: I just don't like that incentive disruptors. Yeah. I think incentives really matter.
2: So, all right. How'd you figure out that it wasn't just about the money? Like we're, most men are taught, hey, you're nothing unless you provide. Like, how'd you get the, one, the kahunas? And two, I guess there had to be this philosophical, there's courage that expresses philosophical divergence from what's normal.
1: Yeah. I mean, let's be I'll be kind of brutally honest here. You know, I'm married into an affluent family and the way we think about the family capital, the partnerships, but, but I'm not talking about just assets, right? Investments. There's also the family capital, the social capital, the relationship capital, the human capital, right? The way we think about the whole partnership is to enable you to be of service or to be entrepreneurial. And so I felt like I'd checked the of service box, right? I'd put in a couple of years in the DA's office. And frankly, just having that cushion allowed me to take a huge risk on it. And I think that's where people, we talk about inequality and this kind of concentration of wealth. I mean, the reality is a large part of that that doesn't get talked often enough about, I think, is just the ability to take that risk off. And I didn't have to worry about paying the mortgage, didn't have to worry about feeding myself. I didn't have kids at the time, but we had resources available to us, which allowed me to take a shot. And if it went up in flames, chalked it up to, you know, school of hard dots, and I could always figure something out. But that's what allowed me to kind of take that risk on was this kind of the family that I married into and also the culture and the encouragement that. And given the way the world is working these days in terms of how much things cost, inflation, then the realities of exponential growth of families and the overhead spend, which we can get into, but like you need a wealth creator every generation. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to maintain your purchasing power over a long time. That's just the reality.
0: Wow. So was there a,
2: a deliberate process that you went through and going from, I'm not going back to the DA's office anymore and I'm hanging my shingle to do something seemingly unrelated to anything that I've ever done?
1: Yeah, it took about two to three years, right? So I left the DA's office. I joined a, basically a solo practitioner to hang a shingle. There were three of us total attorneys and I knew that was kind of a step down. And then I had kind of a a path that I thought, you know, would get me to where I wanted to be. And so that that's kind of what it looked like was I, I left, joined this really small group, did my own thing, and then was able to go full time, you know, pretty shortly thereafter into the, the real estate business.
2: So what about what happened in the real estate business that made you say, I'm ready, I can go full time, I'm ready, it's ready for me to be in that full time instead of, I assume it was a side hustle until that
1: point. It was, it was. We had... An investor who committed a million dollars to our fund too. And he, to him, it was a, that was a de minimis amount of money. And wow. he was, he was really a, a mentor or he was trying to be right. Or what I would call like a Dutch uncle. And as part of his teaching process, he said, listen, I'll make this commitment, but I want to condition on you going through a due diligence questionnaire process. So he brought in a third party advisor to diligence us and we had to go through a full ddq and one of the red flags was that we weren't full-time wow and he said hey i understand like the way this works i'll give you until this date to wind down your other affairs and i'll make the money conditional on you doing this and at the time there were three partners three of us total and my partner and i like diligently went about trying to close those other ventures down and then the third one wasn't able to do it or wasn't willing to do it. And so he left the partnership and the two of us stayed. And so it was really just kind of one of those, it's never a great time, but this forced my hand in a lot of ways. And uh, looking back on it, it was a really great thing that he did for us, which I don't reflect on much, but. And so
2: when you get the news that like it's go time, you're either in or you're out kind of thing, right? How did you respond to that? Because I think so many people. They're like double touching. They're like, they're ready to jump into between the ropes, but they're not ready yet. And so you jumped, but were you resistant? Are you like, oh man, like this is what we needed in order to be able to jump. Cause the million dollars for a lot of people, it sounds like a ton of money, but when you're feeing it, it doesn't really go that
1: far. Right. Yeah, exactly. I was ready. I was ready to, to go all in on it. I had made that mental shift already. So that really wasn't the issue.
2: Okay. So you you get in, it's you and your partner in the beginning. I, I call that period chief everything officer. You're figuring out the problem that your company solves. You're figuring out what the need is and what words you need to say in order to get people to believe in you. A million dollar investment from a single investor is very meaningful in the beginning. And you, You said that was more of a relationship thing and it was a small 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 percentage of his i guess overall investable assets when did you actually figure out that you had like this product market fit thing and that like you could grow it because you've done millions and millions of dollars of investment
1: capital since then i remember we had raised these small funds right so these blind pool vehicles and they weren't big i mean gosh a few million dollars, and then we scaled up to maybe somewhere like low 20s per vehicle, which in that world is not very big. But I remember we had an opportunity to buy a property in, in Nashville, and the fund didn't have enough capital. It was the end of the fund life or deployment. And so we we decided, okay, well, we'll offer it to the LPs as a direct co invest opportunity. We'll charge them no fees on it. Just because we wanted to take down the deal. So it would stretch our dollar a little bit farther. And luckily my partner has, you know, Wall Street background. So he knew that this was possible. I didn't know that you could even do that. And I remember we raised really quickly, like within a couple hours of sending out emails, we raised we were oversubscribing that deal. And they would they were bringing in their friends and their people from their network who were outside of the LP network that we already had. And that's when I realized this is a real business. Like we could really do this. And so we did it again. There was no a, that was, well, yeah, we don't, we no longer do that, but we, that was a small acquisition. Right. And I remember we, the next deal we did was like, uh, God, we bought like a $30 million asset and we raised $18 million. And I remember I was in a hotel in Dallas. I was there for a conference And it was just incredible. I remember that moment of realizing, like, this is a real business. We can do this. Yeah. And that was kind of off to the races after that. What about?
2: Is it just this velocity of capital coming in when you offered the opportunity that made you feel like this was a real business, or was that you raised more money than you ever thought you would ever be able to raise? Like, what? What was?
1: All of the above. I I think the the reality. And the realization of this is a, this is an offering and a product that these discrete population investors don't get exposure to very often. And there's a huge amount of appetite and there wasn't enough, there weren't enough sponsors operating in that space. So just knowing that you were bringing a solution set to the market, solving that problem was really encouraging, obviously. And again, if they remember this is in 2013, so... Crowdfunding was like just starting to be a thing. And, you know, we were sending manual emails out, right? Just like per person. It was a very different world. And, and that, that was really, I think the shift there of gosh, like this, there's a lot of appetite for this and there's not a lot of offerings out there. This is great.
2: We got lightning in a bottle. So I didn't ask this and, and probably should have, how'd you find your partner? Because I think a lot of people are scared to do it on their own. There's complexities that come with partnership, and there's also a need to get bigger faster with partnership because there's two mouths to feed instead of one. So how'd you find your partner? Because usually they don't last, as you said, with the third amigo.
0: They just kind of walked away.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, I remember when I got into the business, a mentor would tell me that, you know, typically these things are three to five year gigs because they're usually commensurate with the cycle. When things go, when things go sideways or when they go down, partnerships blow up. And if you look on LinkedIn within like real estate sponsor world or, you know, financial services or alts, it's pretty accurate. Like three to five years, you'll move on to a new thing. You know, I've had my partner for 11 years now. I met him, (laughs) a guy that I knew through Rotary, which is a thing I used to do, I guess. It was a small Rotary chapter in Nashville. He called me once and said, I've got a friend from New York who's in town. He does real estate. You should have lunch with them. And I had had a lunch cancel on me that day. So I said, it's fine. Cool. Like, I'll go have lunch with this guy. And we sat down. And within 10 minutes, I just thought, this guy has all the complementary skill sets that I don't have. He was looking to move to Nashville. He had married a local. He was looking to do something entrepreneurial. And I bothered him incessantly until he agreed to do the partnership with me. It took me, <laughs> took me a couple of months. I got him. <laughs> what,
2: what did he have? Cause I think there were people out there like, well, what is that? So what did you know that you were good at
1: and what did you know that you needed in order to be successful? I knew I could raise and I knew I could be the front facing marketing guy. And he was, he had a really deep finance background. He had worked on Wall Street for a long time, Cordell undergrad, NYU Law, Duke Business School. And so just, he knew how to structure the offerings and was really good at modeling and underwriting and had real estate experience from his family. And he's a first generation immigrant as well as Indian. And so he just had a work ethic and he still does just a. Huge voracious work ethic. And he had worked corporate law like I had. So I knew that his pain tolerance would be really high, right? Cause I mean, if you're billing 3,000 hours a, a year, everything in comparison is pretty, pretty breezy, honestly. So just hit all the, hit all the marks I was looking for. And likewise, right? He doesn't like being in a crowded room, doesn't like raising capital. Um, he's not a great people person. So you know, as we brought on employees, it's hard for him to build those relationships. So it just worked really well. I mean, he's crazy in a lot of ways, but the two of us have built a pretty good-sized company together.
0: Yeah, I think it's more than pretty good size. A lot of people want to unlock their ultimate potential but lack the strategy, support, and stamina necessary to achieve their major goals. They often try to overcome these challenges by trying to do it on their own, causing frustration, fatigue, and eventually failure. We have developed a model for a center life, AKA the red pill to help them bolster their beliefs, gain clarity on their path to success and provide accountability as they take action on their goals. When they take the red pill, they rapidly accelerate attainment of their goals and begin to experience a life of significance and impact. Want to find out more? Hop over to Jerome Now let's get back to the episode. So you guys go off, it's
2: working, you're you're having momentum, you're having success. Was there anything that wasn't going well as you start to add people to the team? Because I imagine there was a hire, right? First it's equity, maybe nobody's getting paid, figure it out. But then you add that first person and they're expecting a paycheck every two weeks or once a month. Did that first person come in and did they work out? initially or did you have yeah
1: we got lucky no we got lucky our first hire was a guy jimmy who was an all-star and he was my ride or die for five years he has since moved on to different opportunity but very amicable we tried to retain him i tried to i tried to hire him back every 30 days i hit him up super talented super hard worker great guy but yeah, it's one of those things that you hear these cliches get thrown around. And when you're young or new to the business, you're like, that shit's not real. I mean, the one that you hear a lot is the death of an entrepreneur is a salary. And, you know, I haven't pulled down a salary since I left the DA's office. I've been a pure K-1 guy. And it's a crazy way to live. But my partner, I just believe that it it motivates and so every time we've had surplus capital, we put it back into the company to grow it. So it's just how we've always thought about it, but it does take some getting used to, you know, if you're used to getting paid on the 15th of the month or whatever, every two weeks, and you can go long stretches with no income. I don't think it's risky because I know the business and I have confidence, but yeah, I think for most people, it's totally insane. Probably. So does that mean that you? You keep your
2: lifestyle super simple because if you don't have any income outside of maybe a fee when you close on a deal or distributions, whenever the properties pay out, and you know, I have no idea of what type of rent you guys collect on a monthly basis, it seems like it would be very lumpy.
1: <laughs> it is very lumpy. Yeah. It's yeah. very lumpy.
2: Yeah. Does it make it so, Hmm so many different places i could go and i one thing i will do so is you know we were talking before you jumped on you're like man i haven't really had an exit but you guys have sold some of the properties that you've purchased right and from For my sure. perspective every time you exit a deal that truly is an exit because i mean if done well i mean you have seven to, have to ten or seven to eight figures nine figures that you distribute amongst yourself and your partners, even if, you know, it's not the traditional sense of building a business and selling. But I mean, these things in commercial real estate are absolutely businesses. So when, when you got whatever you consider to be that first big check from an exit, were you, what'd you feel? Did you feel anything?
1: If I'm being honest, it was a, it was a pretty big letdown. Just because, yep, you know, you think this will solve your problems, and That's it fixes nothing. <laughs> yeah, and then you know, you, you go down a path of just wanting to hit bigger numbers because you think that will make you feel something, and it's not really a positive feeling. I mean, it's great. I'm sending checks to LPs is awesome, but in terms of my own account if you've got to come to terms, with the fact that it doesn't represent your identity. And that took some untangling, for sure.
2: So a lot of people would describe that as an existential crisis, we call it in the founder's exit paradox. And that's when you have these questions about the purpose or the meaning of life and what your actual identity is and number of other things, but it's not from loss, it's from an achievement. And it sounds like that's what you went through. You said it took some, I think you said unraveling. What is that process? Like walk me through how you unraveled it or what you figured out while you were going through it. Because I think this is the ugly little secret that nobody talks about when it comes to being in business and exiting and getting numbers and so on and so forth.
1: Yeah, there's an old adage in the investment banking world that you know, the saddest guy in town is the one who just sold this company for $50 million. And, wow. you know, you don't get it when you're younger. And I, I certainly haven't made $50 million, but well, I call it the cocktail question test, right? So if you're at a cocktail party or some kind of event and somebody comes up to you and they start chatting, you don't know this person. They say, so, so what do you do? What keeps you busy? Who are you? And if the first thing you respond with is what you do for your job, like you have failed the test. Because at some point, somebody's going to come into your office and say, you need to put all your shit into a cardboard box. You got to go. Or you get put into a a box yourself, right? And that moves on. And it's, we've all been there. Like a colleague leaves, somebody passes away. You have a moment of reflection. And then it's like, oh shit, I got to respond to this email. Right back
2: to business, baby.
1: Yeah. Like, you know, business moves on. The world moves on. And if you assign a lot of psychic value to that gig, and you're just focused on building your resume and not your eulogy, it's going to be tough to navigate the world long-term.
2: Did it take you a long time to accept that?
1: I'm still working on it. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's a work in progress, man, for sure.
2: When'd you get serious about
1: that? Probably, let's see, we're recording this in May. This would have been... Fall, winter of last year, when I had a depressive episode. We just come well, off of two like huge years for our business, just unbelievable. And the, I was just miserable, miserable person.
2: Miserable because of the pressure to yeah. perform or try to the best the, the last year? Miserable.
1: Yeah. I mean, this, you've done everything that you'd hoped to do. You've hit these numbers and then you don't feel any different. And so then you look for things that make you feel different. And so for me, that was, you know, drinking, traveling, workaholism, like anything to make you feel something and just didn't like the person I'd become. So
2: I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who are feeling the same thing or have been through the same thing, but just never felt comfortable talking about it with anybody. And you... And this is like the second time that this has come up. You are bucking the norm. I mean, you're having these conversations in real time in link on LinkedIn, right? You're having, I feel like some of these conversations on your podcast. What, what gives you the courage to do that? Because it's not normal in your socioeconomic community, right? To, to do this type of stuff. It's, kind of just work harder, rub some dirt on it, trudge forward. And you're like, no, wait, like hey, there, are, there's a whole person behind all these numbers.
1: I don't know if it was courage, but more just a sense of empathy in terms of, I know after having a lot of conversations with a, a lot of people, like middle-aged financial services guys, cause that's who I hang out with, that there's just a lot of pain there and a lot of misery. And it's, when you have the lifestyle that a lot of these people lead and you've got the bank account that they do, society is saying like, you should be happy and like you have everything and there's no, there's not really a safe place to say anything contrary to that. And this deal we made when we were kids was, you know, if I had all the toys and if I did all the things and if I followed the rules, then I'd be happy. And the moment of, realization that doesn't bring you the happiness is really scary because then you're kind of adrift you're like, well, I've been doing this for 20 years. I thought this was the deal. Like, where do I go now? And if you don't have a safe harbor, you know, I think that's why a lot of guys end up in a very, very, very dark, dangerous place.
2: So you're on a mission to open the dialogue or you're just sharing so that other people know they're not alone. Like, what's the what's the punchline? Because it's really vulnerable for most people. It's absolutely terrifying to admit that it's not perfect. Because I mean, there's a facade, right? I I suspect you probably have more people line up to invest with you since you started sharing that stuff than prior to. But most people would think that. You'd be killing the company by doing something like that. It's like, oh, that guy's not stable,
1: you know. Yeah, and and I had people in my shop advise me against posting that stuff for sure. I think for me, one of the the outcomes has been people like to invest with people that they know and that they're like them, right? Like attracts like, and again, this goes. There could be some huge inequality issues there, but the reality is most of my investors probably feel this way or have at some point. And what I did finally kind of appreciate is that many of them gone through this journey or in the struggle, and they're thankful to have somebody that they can talk to about it. And if you can deepen a relationship, it's going to lead to other good things. right? So if they're reaching out to me to talk about this, then it leads to real estate, real estate and what have you. So it wasn't calculated that way, but I don't think it's really any different than people who fashion themselves as a subject matter exp- expert on interest rates. I think people are attracted to them because they think they know what they're talking about, right? And if, if people think that you're just a, a human on the journey, like a lot of us are, I think ultimately that's a good thing for you and for them.
2: Yeah, I've been listening to this content recently and they talk about the three lives of people. There's the public life, the private life, and the secret life. And the quicker you can get to the secret life, the deeper the trust and the longer the relationship because you share something. And one of the fastest ways to get in a secret life is by being open about something that people don't traditionally discuss that they are dealing with themselves. And I mean, this is literally what happened for you, even though you were just saying, hey, you're not the only one. I know where I was. This let me tell you where I was so that you don't feel like you're the only one. And there were probably conversations that were happening that weren't broadcasted for public consumption, like this one is. This is, I don't know, I, I've just found the content brilliant. Like, just the penmanship, like the the way you've put the things together and to see how people have responded to it. It's just been enlightening to see the challenges that people are experiencing on a, on a regular basis. And, you know, particularly men, I think women are able to get together in community and process their feelings and so on and so forth. But men, like most of our relationships are totally relying on work, right? And doing the project together and you know, that being kind of the only relationships we have, they're based on proximity. And if we don't intentionally select people to spend time with, then we end up in this place where we have a life that we aren't proud of or we're not happy about. And you can say that you're doing these things under the guise of making more money so that you can provide for your family, but we actually do the the authenticity test, you find out really quickly that that's not why you're doing it. You you mentioned alcohol, you mentioned workaholism. Are are there other things you're seeing people do to kind of, I'll call it relieve the stress or get away from the, the pain?
1: Within my population cohort, yeah, I mean, I think workaholism is a huge problem. I read something Somewhere that was said something like, in 20 years, the only people that would know whether or not you put the extra hours in at the office will be your kids.
2: Cause they're mad because you weren't there.
1: right. Like, so I think it's a big problem. And alcohol and drugs are another really big issue, right? If you, it's one of these things where, if you want to solve, if you want to effectively solve an acute pain, they're super effective in the, sh- in the short term, in the near term. Like it will work. It will work really well. Probably won't so- solve your long-term issues. Right. Um, and so I think it's endemic, to be honest. And the reality is given how much time we spend working, it makes sense that we feel more comfortable at the office than we do at home. Like the office is easy, right? Like,
2: especially if, if you're, you're in control
1: and if you're good at it, if you're, if you, if you are really good at your job and you get rewarded, then you, yeah, like go to the office and work. If you to go home and you've got to see your kids and your wife and figure that all out, given the amount of time in the day that we spend with them, that's a lot harder, and I I totally get it. It's a, it's escapism in a lot of ways.
2: So for that person that's out there, they're chasing the eight figure exit because I mean that's what the listeners for this show are interested in. They're aware because they listen that you know the check isn't the thing that fixes it, right? They know that there's going to be some feelings, some questioning, some doubt on the backside of the exit, and that there might not be a whole lot of safe places for them to have that conversation as they are questioning whether or not they feel happy. Because I think there's some questioning before they actually accept the fact that I'm not happy or acceptance of the fact that I'm depressed or acceptance of the fact that I don't know what I did all that for. I don't know what's now. What words of wisdom would you give them? Do they just not pursue it? Do they? What do you tell them?
1: You have to have some type of identity separate from the money or your job. You have to. Because I think if you assign your identity to the job or to the money, then you're acquiescing control over your life to that thing. And I think money can have energy, right? You can assign positive energy to it. You can assign negative energy to it. You can run your family like succession or you can run your family in a different fashion. And so it's not evil, but I I think it does have this like karmic quality to it. And it's really hard to know what makes you happy or what makes you tick or what gives you kind of a sense of purpose if if you just work all the time or if you drink all the time. And so having some sort of process where you strip away these things and actually be comfortable in your own skin, which I don't think many people are, it's going to be hard. And so I would advise people to get a really good kind of peer to peer affinity network. So it could be EO, it could be YPO, it could be Tiger 21, who whatever, whatever group where you can be honest and real and open to with people that are empathetic because they have lived in your shoes for a while I think is super powerful and it cuts through a lot of the kind of preliminary BS you can get really deep really quickly and then I would advocate for if you kind of took all your time and resources and money and you created a pie chart based on where you spend those things so taxes insurance legal business education for your children whatever I mean how much how much time, money, resources are you allocating towards your mental health or your physical health? Like, where does that look on the pie chart? The, and I bet if you're being really brutally honest with yourself, it's like less than 5%. Yeah.
2: I've said that, it's less than 1%. For and, me. Yeah, yeah.
1: and what I said, t- I tell this to my kids, any society or culture or group, you can determine their value system by looking at their budget. Mm-hmm. Good, Allocation right? so, of the resources. Yeah, yeah. So if you look at the United States government and how we spend our resources... We actually like, you know, really care about taking care of people, Medicare, Medicaid, social security, the defense budget. But, you know, there's certain things that we don't allocate resources to, and that's a reflection of our value system. And so you can do it on a household level, on a personal level, as long as you're really honest, I would recommend actually bringing a third party to keep you real on that. And if you're only spending a couple hours a week getting your head right or your body right, you know, what I tell people After my journey is like, if you don't like the outputs that you're getting, how you feel, how you look, how you operate, then you can change the inputs and it will, it will make a difference, but you gotta be real with kind of what the output looks like.
2: Oh man, Ryan, this was phenomenal. Who else should we have on the show, man? This was raw. This was real. Usually folks who are doing that have a a couple of battle buddies who are actually doing the same thing. And I'd love to get more of these conversations going because these are. The things that we
1: need to hear. Yeah, I'll get with you offline. We've got some folks okay. that I can send you that might be good. Awesome, awesome.
2: All right, listeners, you heard it from Brian Adams himself. If you're, if you're looking for a place to put some capital, I don't know if you can get in the Excelsior, but know that your money is safe and that they're always going to be real and transparent and authentic with you. If you're if you're on that journey to your eight figure exit and you're looking for somebody to go on that journey with you somebody who actually understands what it's going to take and is interested in making sure that you're good, not just trying to figure out how to extract value from the enterprise, then hop over to our new website, theexitparadox.com, and grab that PDF we got there that talks about the six centers of doubt that every entrepreneur is going to experience on the backside of their exit. Until the next time, your dreams should be real. We'll talk soon.
0: Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real.